if, if we use blockchain, for example, to make decisions or whatever, or, or some sort of even some sort of algorithm, you know, artificial intelligence and so on, don't we just shift the trust now from centralized parties, which are humans, to the algorithm itself? Because, you know, 99.9% of whatever will not understand the code which is behind this algorithm, even if it may be objective, but there's still, still some sort of trust left. So it's not completely black and white that you can say, okay, it's completely trustless or, hey, uh, you know, it's, it's completely central, decentral. There's always some sort of uh, spectrum in there. Yeah. Welcome to Specific Knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my two friends, Lucas and Ryan, who are experts in their field. Today's topic is about feedback loops and evolutionary order and we're joined by a special guest. We hope you enjoy episode 11 of Specific Knowledge. All right, guys, welcome. Episode 11, Feedback Loops and Evolutionary Order. We have Lucas, who is currently coming to us from uh, an active uh, power outage due to Hurricane Nicholas. Uh, so Lucas has joined us from the phone. We have Ryan, and we have a special guest here today, Rene Hochmut from Germany. Close enough, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we'll do an intro in a second, but how are, how are you guys doing? So I'm doing fine. With the, uh, I'm in Houston with Luke, but uh, it's a big city. So he got, he got hit with the power outages, but on our side, we're on the south side, and we've been good with the power. So a little bit of debris in the yard, but other than that, doing fine. So just looking forward to uh, chatting with you guys about order. Yeah. And Lucas. Yeah. Things aren't that bad. If I can uh, make it to hang out with you guys and, and talk technology or, or uh, meet up with our weekly rendezvous, life life is good. It's a pleasure. And especially when I knew that Renee was taking time to be here today, I was really excited to find a way. So pardon the audio. I am on a phone because we are without power, but after the winter storm knocking out power for some days, it really isn't that bad. Things <laughs> things could be worse and everyone's okay and we'll just yeah. wait until um, it gets restored. But yep, at least I can make it. Awesome. Yeah, good to hear that you guys are safe. Um, and Renee, uh, I'd like to introduce you first and then we can get to, uh, get to what you're on here uh, today for because we're, we're really excited to have you. Yeah, th- uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm joining in here from... Uh, Leipzig, Germany. Uh, fortunately, we don't have any hurricanes, and I'm very excited <laughs> to uh, chat with you guys and go go into the weeds here. Yeah. Yeah. So Rene, um, he studied uh, physics, particle physics, actually in Germany. Uh, wrote his thesis for CERN, the Large Hadron Collider. You know, the, the large research facility. I think the largest in the world that smashes particles together for fun uh, and for science. I mean. And um, then he switched his hobby to professional poker playing, uh, which is pretty neat. Uh, it just shows his knowledge on anything game theory. And uh, now he's the mathematical advisor uh, for Wisesoft, which is uh, where I work. And that's how we know each other. And <laughs> getting on calls with you sometimes, just hanging out and 
talking about math and physics and game theory. It's just my favorite part of uh, working where we work. So uh, with, without further ado, take it away, Renee. Yeah. Okay. So thank you again for having me. And I got asked to sort of pick a topic on, on what we're discussing today. And I would like to discuss the topic of feedback loops because I got introduced to feedback loops uh, like in, in a sense where I really sort of, it sort of clicked in my mind how important they are, not only in the field of research I was doing, but also in, in life in you know, social media in markets and therefore also in, in cryptocurrency. And that's, that's what I, what I want to get into today. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of the, like the biomathematics of feedback loops uh, is where you mm -hmm. want to start. Yeah. So yes. Yes. So, so this there. one. Mm -hmm. So this one uh, was sort of the one which which most impressed me, and it was one of my favorite subjects in university. And uh, what you can think of it, what biomathematics is, uh, let's let's start from a very uh, easy uh, point of view. So let's say you have a box and there's bacteria in there, and you want to model. Okay, how much bacteria is in there like after an hour you know after after day after a week and you only have the simple rule where you say okay every 20 seconds you look at the current population of the bacteria and then you say now it will grow 10 percent based on that uh, principal uh, starting point of population for example and you only have this you know simple rule you have a, a certain number uh, of, of particles, which in this, uh, in this case is our bacteria. And then you have the simple growth rule where you say, okay, this is how many percentage get added. And if you do that, you already have uh, exponential growth, which is also uh, a kind of feedback loop. We can talk about this later. So this, this one would be sort of the, the, the most easy um, introduction to, to such models. And another one would be for example, a hunter-prey uh, model, where you can imagine, you know, we have uh, uh, two animals. Uh, one, one is a hunter, one is a prey. Like the, the prey, you know, could be a rabbit and the hunter would be a, a fox or whatever, you know? And now you look at those populations and then you have a certain relationship. Like, okay, uh, I have a certain number of hunters. I have a certain number of prey. If there's a lot of, prey, then the number of hunters will grow because they have a lot of, you know, food to eat to actually nurture their, their offspring. Uh, but at the same time, the number of preys uh, will go down because they get killed, you know, they get eaten. And so you have this sort of shift of numbers back and forth. Uh, and so just to sort of uh, introduce you to that, that sort of uh, thinking in those types of uh, models. This, this is something I also studied in university and found super interesting. Uh, a bit from a different perspective, but honestly, the same thing is like oscillation theory and how there are natural oscillators. Like the, the one that's the, the common example is pendulums. You swing a bunch of pendulums near each other and after a while, they will all sync up, which is this weird phenomena. Um, and it's used in watchmaking for making more accurate timekeeping. And, and uh, there's a lot more. And natural oscillators, I think, is where we're, uh, we're breaking into here with the, 
the biomathematics uh, and feedback loops in, in nature. Mm -hmm. I, I could go on a tangent now because uh, harmonic oscillators are extremely important in physics and uh, one of the, and also what lies behind a string, string theory at the, at the bottom, uh, ju just, just for information right now. It just reminded me of that. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I had to mention that. Okay, uh, but now we get uh, into uh, one of the patterns I, I was most, you know, intrigued by in university, just because uh, we we already discussed two models, um, and we we increased the complexity, you know, step by step. Like we started with a very very simple model. Now we introduced a second component to it, and now how how those populations interact with each other or can interact with each other. Uh, by a certain rule. Now, um, let's now imagine um, we have, again, uh, a box and we have two liquids, for example, two different liquids. You can imagine it like having two different colors. It's, it's easier to picture, I think. And now we have this, uh, this liquid, A. Let's, let's call it liquid A uh, and liquid B. And if they don't react uh, with each other, then what they would do is just diffuse, you know, they would just uh, move around and you would have this sort of blend uh, of those two, like those A and B. And uh, this is basically what happens if you do, you know, mix, mix a cocktail or whatever, uh, basically most of the time. Or uh, for example, you, you have water and you, you spill in some ink or something like that, right? Okay. Now, if, however, if uh, those, um, substances or those, those liquids interact with each other, like chemically, and we introduce a new rule where we say, okay, uh, A, the substance A causes the production of more substance A, but also the production of B, but B inhibits the production of A, okay? The interesting thing now is if they diffuse with the same velocity, then nothing interesting would happen, you know, because it, it would stay the same. This is always in equilibrium and it will always stay the same. However, if, they, uh, if A and B have a different velocity, what happens is you have sort of uh, areas where a lot of uh, B sort of uh, clumps together and there's not much A around because it, it inhibits the production of A. But then there's areas where, uh, you know, there's a lot of A and there's not, not a lot of B yet. So you have this uh, interconnection and what, like this model already, uh, if like we, we put it in, uh, you know, at university, just, you know, by hand and then in the computer, just modeling it out. And you already get the, the patterns of the skin of fishes, of, of snakes and so on. And this is actually, a very simple model, but it can already explain things you can see in nature where you have sort of this very, uh, you have the simple rules, but it's actually chaotic because there's a lot of things going on. If you zoom in at a very specific area, there's a lot of, you know, things like P, uh, A gets produced, but B inhibits and it, it moves around very quickly, gets super chaotic. But if you zoom out, you can see actually a stable pattern but the stable pattern gets produced by those uh, interacting feedback loops, basically. So, and there, there's a name for this pattern, isn't there? Yes, uh, and this pattern is called Turing pattern. Just yeah. uh, if anyone's interested. 
I was going to say one way to think about these feedback loops, I guess, to make it to make the concept uh, real simple is isn't this a case where the outcome of this process is then rerouted back in and, and treated as input? Exactly. That's the changes, definition. Which mm -hmm. would then change, right, the uh, the process. Going, it kind of incorporates that knowledge, that information. It's like a learning, like a which, learning mechanism, right? Which uh, going back into the human action, Friedrich Hayek, uh, you know, that economics applied to markets and people, you know, this really reminds me of, and it, we were taught this in university also, this really reminds me of the age-old Malthusian population uh, feedback loop. You remember that, Ryan? Yeah. Yeah. I can see how I it mean, can be applied that way. That's a neg definitely a negative feedback loop, <laughs> but yeah. But, it, but well, it depends upon which way, but that right. is one of the uh, very basic empirical experiments in, it, that applies this to human action. It's the idea that, well, as the, as the food supply increases, um, our ability to um, have a higher population it grows. So more people, mm -hmm. there's more people. But as there's more people, there's more of a drain on resources, which makes it more difficult. So there's right. this check and balance. And for a long time, I bring it up because for a long time, that feedback loop explained population to a T, so much so that people believe the model to be accurate and true. Like a universal but, law. But then come to find out, like a black swan, which happens to models all the time, that there was uh, another variable and, and technology uh, allowed for actually for an increase of population and for an increase in food production and resources. So, so the Malthusian models brought up today as as an example of how sometimes these models of feedback loops that are elegant and and seem to explain a lot can still miss the mark sometimes but when well, you talk I, about the i think it's one feedback loop being substituted for another because you're right that the malthusian story was a feedback loop because the as the population as the food supply grew from what some small productivity gain right that led to a bigger population and then that then was checked by by the over by that population's now new new large amount of needs right that the food supply couldn't wasn't equipped to deal with because it didn't grow as fast as the population did and then that but the opposite but then you had a new feedback loop when technology changed right and then you had a greater amount of productivity gains which was a which enabled a larger population and then that the new feedback loop was about the gains of of technology and how those become self-reinforcing and, and aren't, they don't, they don't have a single round of effects that just stop, but there's that, that change then has new changes that ripple out from it. Right. Whereas before in the old feedback loop system, whatever gain in technology would produce a, a first, a first round set of effects in the, in a larger supply of food, but that what, but those first round effects didn't lead to second, third, fourth, fifth round of effects, which had yeah, subsequent it, gains, right? It kind yes, of just stopped. I would say it also, it also um, changes the way one looks at a variable's relationship um, to the model, right? Because in one, you're looking at people as just automatically being a greater drain than they can, can produce. But with division of labor and what we saw post-industrial uh, revolution and with with the technology as we call it in a lazy sum up all words term, but we found out that we can organize patterns where people can actually produce more 
than they would ever consume on their own and allow for more production. So it also changes the model. It changes the variable. It changes a black swan can change the relationship that we look at, at some of these variables in a model. Too. Well, that's a good point. Cause humans in the old model are seen as merely consumers. That's the, their primary designation. That's the primary role. So more of them is, is a net negative for, for, um, for living standards, but in the new world in the new, with the new model, consumer people are seen not as only as consumers, but also as producers and innovators. And they're, and they're seen as actually a resource. Humans are instead of being a, a drain on resources, they're seen to be as an, uh, as a catalyst for more resources. So you're right that the way the, var- the variables are treated, uh, can shift for sure. And I wonder if there's anything yeah. Ray or Devin, if you guys can think of any, uh, analog in the physical or biological world where, where like a, a new, a new set of a new order emerges where, where variables shift from being in one way in one order and into a different in a new order. Right. Does that, does that, any, yep. does that come about and in the say, physical world as well? Well, one more thing real quick. I was going to say, that's why I always uh, sat close to Ryan because he would take whatever I said and, and just make it sound so much better. And, and that's, <laughs> but, uh, that I was also going to say, you know, and Renee was talking about patterns um, and, and how they've been able to find these in nature. It reminds me of electromagnetic theory and that you look at canyons or rivers or your veins or um, you look inside of plants and trees and, and the way the roots uh, mycelium grows. And, and they find this uh, like electric, like lightning, almost this um, electric pattern in, in nature being mimicked. And it reminded me of that when you were talking about the patterns found um, in this other model. Uh, so, but yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Going back to what uh, Ryan was saying, I'm going to step back and listen. No, uh, Lucas, you're absolutely right. And uh, what, what Ryan said, uh, um, it's actually true that the sort of the, one of the base layers of the study of those models and those patterns is actually uh, chaos theory, which sort of explains a lot of those pattern formations, which you can find also a lot of, in, which you already described in, in clouds, in uh, how, you know, the, the shape of the pattern of the mountains, uh, of, the, of the rocks, for example, and all, all sorts of different things where you have uh, in, interactions with, with feedback loops as well. But um, so uh, to your question, Ryan, I mean, uh, what exactly do you mean in the, in the physical world where, uh, like, can you specify a little bit more? Let me think. So like in the, bio, in the body, um, you could see elements would maybe have a, a certain function at a certain level of complexity. But then when, when they emerge to a new, when things evolve or step up into a new level of complexity at a different level of order, the function shifts to be completely different or the opposite of what it was before. Because that's oh, yeah, kind of uh, what we're talking about here with, with humans. In the old model, in the Malthusian model, humans were negative, and in in this new new model based on technological growth, and um, they they become a positive. So it's a complete inversion of the of the role they played in the model. I, I have an I think I have a I'm I'm not an expert on this. Uh, we we had some what's called uh, medicine physics uh, stuff, but it, it sort of reminds me um, of of one way how the immune system can sort of overdeal uh, with with threats such that if the threat is already gone, it still sort of falsely thinks that some of the cells which are actually, you know, uh, productive and not 
cancer or uh, some sort of other, you know, negative. Well, yeah, that would be a diabetes is diabetes or, or, or the, um, uh, one, one of the last uh, epidemics we had, well, one of the largest epidemics we had in the 20th century actually had this problem where a lot of young people, like the, the mortality rate of young people was actually higher than those of the older ones, exactly for that reason, because the immune system was, was so strong that uh, it sort of flooded the whole body such that it, it, it sort of uh, compromised its, its own body even like to to too much like the, to an extent which was more than it was needed called a cytokine storm basically and yeah. there's something going on there also with uh, coronavirus as, as well but not not as much uh, if you look at the distribution of the mortality rates for example and this this would be one case where you have those uh, biological systems where you have the immune system and it has to also sort of uh, balance itself where it doesn't have to be too active you know but it doesn't have to be too too dis disabled when when something comes in and uh, this can go south really quick so the, maybe this is uh, one, one one example yeah. Re remember what you, what you get sick from is not technically, sorry, the symptoms you feel are not technically the, the disease. It's your body's reaction to it. Your, a fever is right. your body trying to burn off a, a virus or something. So yeah, that's a very interesting um, mechanism that's, that's built in. And I'm sure there are tons within the human body. I mean, another example would be like the pain people feel from uh, phantom limb syndrome. I guess you guys oh, are familiar yeah. with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm where it's like pain is a feedback system of feedback that helps you. But if you, if you lose a limb, now this system has been turned against you. Right. And it serves no purpose other than to make mm -hmm. you miserable. So yeah, yeah, that seems like a big example. Right. So we we're talking about, you know, feedback loops and, and, and simple systems and, uh, and then gradually uh, increasing the complexity. Now um, let's, let's talk a bit about feedback loops in pricing, for example. So, you could have a simple, let, let, let's just do a thought experiment here. Let's say somebody looks at the market, like has no idea what's going on, you know, and they think, okay, uh, I'm only going to buy something which has gone up recently. <laughs> okay. And I'm, I'm not going to buy something which has not done that. Okay. If everyone would do that, then everything which goes down will just go down even further or stay constant and everything which has gone up in, a sh in the last short period of time will just go up to infinity right so uh, th th this one would be the the easiest you know uh, model to see that uh, there's more going on but there is a little bit of that going on you know uh, if you look at for example the market cycles in in, in crypto where you seem to have the those, uh, well, not, well, yeah, the, the media calls it bubbles, but it's, it's sort of a weird uh, thing to call it bubbles uh, in a sense. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of uh, those, those high run-ups and then corrections and those patterns uh, are very related, I think, to those models, depending on uh, what, what people imply uh, the value of it is. If, if, if the value for them is only that other pe people bought it or other people think it's valuable, you know, this, those can create a feedback loop in itself. And this also goes for uh, the downside, I think. Uh, so if, if people sell it then, but their only information resource is other people sell it. So I don't, I don't know what's going on. 
they they sell it so they must be right so i need to sell it too and then this can you know uh yeah basically uh, yeah it's like a herd behavior kind of yeah. thing it's where you don't when you don't consider the the underlying structural design of what you're buying like the tokenomics or the incentives or the any of those those structural things if you just look purely on hype and or price then yeah it's easy to get caught up in and you're just you're just going off the feedback from the from the uh, from the market right that's purely yeah that's purely the the pr what price is right just a, it's purely a, a signal about the market's uh, momentary appraisal what what's interesting if you look at um if we're talking about bitcoin here and cuz i think it has the longest history of any cryptocurrency it follows and if you you guys know the plan b uh the guy who came up with the um chart uh something stock to flow model or something like that. It's just the price on a logarithmic curve mm -hmm. and it's extremely oscillatory. Like it, it just oscillates around that. So it's, it, it's not maybe something we can see in, when it's uh prices price or uh, charted linearly or, or in any other way, but when it's, it's probably oscillating around some kind of mathematical structure and with Bitcoin, that's true. Right. Yeah. And then, but then there's lots of booms and, peaks and valleys around that right, right. and yeah. that's where the that's where the speculation is yeah and, and also one one problem with uh like we, we already discussed that um every model has sort of uh restrictions in a sense so, so it can only apply to be applied uh, in, in a certain accuracy you know um then the problem becomes if if you're looking at more complex systems you would need more complex models but then there's, it's even more hard to determine if those models actually uh, can distinguish between noise or predictiveness or whatever. And I think one of, one of the things uh, which I don't really like about this logarithmic uh, thing is it, it sort of doesn't take one into account that the US dollar itself yeah. uh, is, is inflationary. So <laughs> you would, you know, uh, from the, like the, not, not the buying pressure, what's the word, the buying power. <laughs> Buying power, yes, yes, the buying power. Um, that was that was one thing which I always thought it could be, you know, uh, modeled well, into. But there's there's plenty of other stuff. Yeah, well. that's actually something we chatted about last week. Is uh, like the Austrian uh, cycles uh, and models of of booms and busts, and how those are actually. I don't know if there you can like make it a regressive uh, thing that happens again and again on a constant basis, but it's still something that's modelable. Um, and Ryan, you're much more of an expert on that. Uh, I think it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not something you could definitely trace out in a deterministic way because there's so many like psychic things that hinge on it, like time and time and place, right. The, that are unique from one cycle to another. Though but, it still uh, seems that if there's overprinting or, you know, the buying powers is changing. Oh, rapidly, right. There's these going things to be can a... tend to follow. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just a question of what path does that take and how is it expressed this time versus the others. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a perennial thing. Um, the, the question, the key question to tell whether or not the Austrian cycle is in play or not, what I think is trying to figure out what demand, what the demand for money is doing. Right. So you could, if you could, you could see a large amount of money creation and, and that would seem to be like indicative, indicative of inflation and monetary debasement. And it on its and if you hold all of everything else constant, then it would be. But there's always those changes on like what people are willing to hold, how much money they want to hold, right? So it's like and getting your mind on getting your getting data on that magnitude, which is really just the inverse of velocity. 
seeing like seeing what the velocity of money is getting that figured out is the hard part to figure out to knowing whether or not you're in that inflationary moment or not. Sure. But then, then can I pose a question? You know, obviously mm-hmm. there's, there's other variables, but as we just talked about with like turning patterns, where if things have different velocities, which it's very unlikely that something's going to have a similar velocity. And even if it does, there's so many other variables that it's, it's lost and diluted. If there are so many other variables with their own oscillatory patterns, uh, mixing with these other variables, doesn't it just create some kind of greater oscillation or, or Turing pattern that is somewhat <laughs> predictable, uh, uh, but we can't see because we're not zoomed out that far? I mean, I guess so. If you look at GD, like mat- bigger aggregates, like, like uh, say, for example, GDP, you could definitely see stable patterns with, with it always getting larger and larger. And because and one of the things is technological growth that people, that's one of the trade-offs the, the Austrians debate about amongst themselves. They'll say, okay, yeah, we're going to have this, this, we're going to, we're fu- fueling a bubble. We're printing money, f- we're fueling a bubble with cheap credit. But out of that, there's going to be companies that take these loans and combine them in novel ways and come up with some new technology. And while they might be liquidated in the bust, that technology then informs what we do going forward. And, and that, that can, we can learn from that and have new innovations that maybe do become uh, some kind of awesome welfare enhancement for us. Right. And so I guess you could, you could do, you could make an argument that that would be a, um, a consequence that would be, that would not, not necessarily be a bad one. Right. It'd be a good consequence, but something a lot larger than just the, the, uh, the, then bigger than inflation in statistics or something. It's something a lot, something we're not focused on when we talk about the business cycle, the long run effect it has on technology, but that that's definitely a feedback there, a feedback loop that's not always appreciated when you're having a, a say a housing crisis or a, or a stock market crisis, you know, it's, it becomes difficult to say, yeah, yeah, but look, we're going to get, we're going to get some great gains out of these technological investments in a few years. Just hold on. You know, <laughs> Um, well, this definitely looks like uh, a perfect, you know, perfect conversation for specific knowledge. I mean, this is definitely the role that knowledge, technology, we keep using the word technology, but this is what separates human action from the cause and effects that we study in physical nature. And we're talking about models where we see these patterns, these oscillatory patterns and how they apply to human action. And I think I, I already know Ryan's answer. It's going to be the the scissors, the, the dialectic, there's this and that, and I would agree with them. Uh, but, but there's also the knowledge, and, and that's the idea that, well, we can't just purely look at a, a cause and effect oscillation of patterns when we recognize a new variable can come in that completely changes the harmonic or the oscillation. And, and so um, I, I think it, I think, you know, that's where, that, that's where the, the two, uh, kind of meet, right? Where you can have these oscillating harmonic patterns that we see in nature. Do they apply to us? And do we see that happening in humanity? Yes. But we also recognize that we create our institutions. We create many patterns based upon our beliefs. And, and often our beliefs about something are, are incorrect or they, they are refined and they change. And with that, so do the patterns that we form our institutions they form around our our beliefs and our knowledge so that that would be you know you don't see a tree change its beliefs and then uh the 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 way the roots grow all of a sudden for cypress trees and and ropes have all of a sudden just changed it's like 
we uh, humanity humans have a unique capacity for for changing our harmonics and patterns that that we create but yeah we, we absolutely fall into that um that you know that effect like you mentioned Devin, of, of the pendulums we 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 feed off of the feedback loops of each other we we actually learn from each other and that's part of understanding our nature if you walk outside of your house and you see everybody looking up at the sky you're gonna look up at the sky now they may be pranking you there may be nothing going on up at the sky but it's your human nature to look and see what everybody else is looking at because from the moment we're all babies and we're born we ask why 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 what what curiosity we learn knowledge from each other we're all standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us in, in whatever field of science or knowledge yeah i, I actually want to um contrast something so i i recently uh heard a podcast uh and it, it's it's that sort of inspired me to to think about this so it's sort of a relationship now i'm, I'm going trying uh trying to do a comparison between what consciousness uh, serves as a as a model as a, as predicting uh, the future and sort of the feedback comes now from reality in a sense uh, and compare that to the crypto market because in the crypto market I always feel like when we are in those um, hot moments in those cycles let's say let's say, let's take a bull run for example in the beginning of the bull run people think obviously think that uh, the market is undervalued that's why that's why they're buying right. And the reason they're buying can also be because they think, oh my God, this is, well, this is so, so such a good technology. This will be the future. I want to be the first one. I want to front run the institutions. You know, I, this, is, this is amazing. Now this can start this feedback loop and, and other people buying. Now, if you think about maybe there exists an, a, a, a real price, like an objective price, just as a thought experiment at that moment, At some point, because of those feedback loops and because of the things we already talked about, where other people are just basing their decisions on, on the other ones, and now this feedback loop crea uh, is created where they just buy because they see other people buying, then you overshoot uh, basically where the technology is already. That's what you saw, I think, in the, in the internet bubble uh, in the beginning. And I, I think in the crypto space, you see that all, all over again. But at some point, you know, reality kicks in and you, you see the correction. And it's, it sort of reminded me uh, of this uh, model I heard about consciousness, where you basically say that, well, consciousness is sort of a predictive model where you always have to think about, you, you have some sort of, you know, narrative and, and framework and you, you learned, you have a model of, of how the world around you works what certain things mean, but you always need to predict something, you know, because if you cross the street, then you need to predict, okay, you, you look to the left. Oh yeah, no, that's fine. I, I will hear if somebody comes from the right, you know, and, and you just, just walk. And you could get into some sort of mania or some sort of, you know, uh, jam in your head. Uh, and that, that can go on for a while, or you can have an overinflated ego or whatever, but At some point, you know, reality will, will kick in and will sort of co correct you uh, downwards. So I, I don't know what you guys uh, feel about that comparison, <laughs> if that's too far-fetched or whatever. But Well, I think it makes sense because it highlights the link between consciousness and decision-making in the physical world with the same kind of processes that are going on when you make an investment in the market. Because it's it really is the same thing. I mean, you know, there is no... 
Now th there are differences in the sense that the physical world, you can, you do have an underlying objective reality. So if there's a car or not, that's, that's it either, there either will be or not, it's either going to run you over, right? You either see it or you don't, right? So there, it's not really, it's not subjective. It either exists or it doesn't. And, but within the market, there really doesn't seem to be uh, such a thing as an objective price. You know, there's that, and that's kind of why I think it, the market is such a, it's such a more, so it's a place where these kind of, where, where bubbles and booms are and busts and disappointment seems to be like a given, like a bit baked into it, just the nature of the thing. Because well, I love of, that you brought that up. Uh, I, I, I was thinking the same ahead. thing because, no, I was just thinking the same thing that when, when Renee brought that up and we've talked about this is kind of one of the main tenets of specific knowledge or where we like to really get into the concept of value, but there's no such thing as objective value of of, of anything at any point in time that that itself is just uh an ungraspable you know a, un idea right that 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 bitcoin or anything at any point in time is overbought you really don't even know where you are on a bull run uh until it's over right we don't know the beginning yep. middle end until until hindsight and while it's only after the fact that you can tell and then you come back mathematically and everything fits beautifully into patterns, hindsight, because everything does unfold to an Elliot, to a mathematical pattern. We just don't know where, which pattern it is this time. <laughs> or where you're at. Yeah. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah but but uh, maybe the car example was not that good. I was, I was more thinking about somebody being, you know, delusional or over enthusiastic about some, or, or you know, or, or um, uh, they, they have too much. You said on that. Yeah, because that I think what you're pointing to are basically universal, um, universal characteristics of human nature, and and how people respond to different stocks of knowledge. And yes, yeah, some people they buy because they see other people buying it when the price is up. Some people buy because they have done a little bit more research and have an understanding, but they're still limited to many variables acting on price or or supply and demand that they're not aware of. And so there's, there are always people that are making decisions with different levels of uh, information, right? And, and so and they'll, they'll make it, re, they'll, the question is, which variables outweigh, which decision makers uh, have more sway at any given point in time? Is it the people who are buying or is it mm -hmm. the people who are selling? Which and we were always doing that in, in economics, right? What's affecting the price? There's supply and demand. Well, there's all these variables that can affect demand. You read the newspaper one day, tomatoes cure cancer. Oh man, all the people are gonna to wanna to start buying more tomatoes. You read the newspaper, hurricane wipes out the supply of half the tomato farms. Oh man, the price is gonna shoot up. And you can find news article, you know, a story after story, variable after variable that affects either an upward pressure or downward pressure. And these things are so dynamic and always happening. And um, we don't know which, which at any given point in time, which is going to the greater effect we, we, until we kind of see it playing out. It's not until we look backwards that we can say, ah, look, this is the one that had a greater effect at this point in time. And, I, and I, that's what I love about the Austrian um, models and understanding how many variables, how subjective how dynamic the world is you re you recognize 
um, the impossibility of calculation, the impossibility of social calculation on, on certain levels. We can understand concepts that are universal, but, but there's also an understanding we can have that, that recognizes the impossibility of, of modeling or controlling on, on some levels. Yeah, but Lucas, I think, um, and, and I agree with everything you said, but do you think, I think personally, I think, and I, I would like to see what you think, uh, blockchain gets us closer because right now there is no one truth, right? We all live in, especially now in a world where, I mean, the world, the word zeitgeist is like, that's not a pluralized word, but it's become that where we all have different uh, realities we live in. But blockchain allows, if devices are built for it and, and it are connected to these, you, you can see, okay, this hurricane that happened, these were the, this was the, uh, the storm's uh, wind speed because it was collected by this device at this time that's stored on the blockchain and can be verified and, and uh, collected. That information can be recollected whenever. So from then on, you go from, you create this database of, true information truths, right? And you can develop then models or disperse information in a more true way uh, that is agreed upon by more than just one person who is uh, trying to manipulate in, in some way. W- would you agree with that? I, I definitely think redundancy and having more uh, checks on information is stronger than having you know one central point of failure or one central point of information. I, I, I agree with that. I, I actually am in the, there is absolute, there is one truth. Uh, I, 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 I understand that we all have different perceptions, but I still believe that we are all uh, grasping and perceiving and, and working to explain the same one thing and, and how we all act and, and react in it. So, um, but I think we can, that there's room for this and that. While I do believe that there's an objective reality in which we all participate in and have subjective perceptions and understandings, which is why we're stronger when we come together and share our different perspectives of the tree we're staring at. Um, I also believe that because of our ability to not see the whole thing and to make mistakes and the fallibility uh, of, of perception, but also the corruption you speak of that can happen. It absolutely, I, I, I blockchain is a, a major step forward in communication, um, and, and not just for that redundancy you were talking about of having, you know, more information come back like on a measurement, but also when it comes to transparency. I, and I guess they can be looked at the same way, but this this idea of security and transparency being bundled together in one clean package is, is really, it's just beautiful, right? Cause that's, that's, that's the security is the transparency in blockchain, right? It's that open source that everyone can understand clearly how it works. And therein lies the, the security. <clears throat> Let me see if I can take a crack at Devin's question. Cause I, cause I uh, had an idea that I think could be maybe shine some light on, on the, on what are the issues here? So the claim you made, I think, if I have it right, Luke, was that um, because of the distribution of knowledge, you know, because it's decentralized and because we were so everything's so complicated, uh, central planning or you know, like some kind of a social calculation at the level of society is not possible, right? Wasn't that what you said? If that's 
if that I believe that's correct, right? A, a rendition, accurate rendition. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds good. You can go. With yeah, and so the question then Ida Devon had would well, okay, so blockchain's helping us learn more about say hurricanes and, and also all kinds of stuff like supply chain. There's you know more detailed knowledge about supply chain. Um, at any moment, like what what's in what is where in the shipment or in the process. And there's and then you could go on from there too about whether it's like feedback in terms of people's reactions <clears throat> you know, on social media. And there's a lot more information gathered there. And so the question is, is does is this this Austrian point about the impossibility of calculation of, of central planning, does that still hold? Or or are these new technologies uh, allowing us to gather information that make that a an antiquated idea? And I think that it still holds. But it, but it has to be, it has to be clear on what level it holds at, because it's, it is true that we are learning a lot more about the social world through these technologies, and it's also true that Walmart has been employing a lot of like algorithms in their systems to update their inventory and to order things, and it's a lot of this is done centrally through a bunch of computers, right? And so there's a, there's, a there's an allocation of resources happening by algorithm. And so the, the issue is as well as we develop more smarter technologies and new algorithms and, and we apply these things in new novel ways, which blockchain is helping us do, maybe we get to a point where we don't need markets and prices and money anymore, that we can have a supercomputer that it just plugs all these data streams and we, and we, we can crunch, we have databases and they spit out an optimal allocation. And I, this is where I think it goes too far. I feel like that the point the uh, the point you were making, Luke, about how there's an inability to crunch these numbers at the social level uh, for like optimizing the distribution of resources. I think that still holds, even though. So it's it's the case. It's still the case that we're we're learning more, so we can make so companies will be able to make better decisions, no doubt. And and I think we will we will be benefited from it at a social level, but because of the way money makes us gives us this unit where we can compare dissimilar things together like uh, for example cars and cheeseburgers how many how many units of this one versus that one you know if we had a giant database and we were all and it was just filled with impressions and clicks and reactions and then maybe some kind of inventory list regarding the various items that exist in society and, and in what locations i still don't believe no matter how much information we pulled about people about their wants and needs I still don't think without money and prices, we could answer the questions about what's the optimal distribution of resources and how to make these various things. Cause you can make, you know, cars in various ways with various combinations of resources. And the most optimal way to do that is the one that achieves a safe car that people want at a right at a certain price point, but doesn't waste uh, scarce resources that could be used in other places that are more valuable. Right. So there's this, this, so it's difficult. So there's a, a sort of a sorting uh, discovery process that occurs through the price system, which enables us to compare dissimilar things together. And I feel like that's going to be necessary always, no matter what kind of technological innovations we come up with about getting raw data about the world, whether it's hurricanes or calories or, you know, fill in the blank, anything in between. I still feel like there's going to be this need for the market process to answer the the um, questions about how humans value things. Cause that's really what we're talking about here. It's not so much that the values are embedded in the data. It's always about how's that data mm-hmm. sorting? Mm-hmm. How's that data going to be, how do we, how do humans react to it? That's, that's the thing. Yeah. And how human. relevant is that data 
tomorrow. I mean, we can't ignore the elephant in the room of the subjectivity of, of values that people place on something at any given point in time anyway, right? Like it's not a constant unit value for the, the pleasure or the joy or the utility that someone receives from a hammer or a nail or an automobile. It's always changing. And, and the objects at which people are seeking are, are changing as, as new combinations come into play and values that people placed on old combinations of capital are no longer relevant or valued or, or, or used that much. And, and you know, that, that's part of the unknown, um, that dynamic part of human nature that no matter how great your tools are at measuring and, and giving feedback, you're not going to get around that dynamic part of reality um, that I think we're talking about. It comes down to the, there's an efficiency of freedom. There's an efficiency of allowing people to make choices. And, and, and that should be a feedback loop, um, a checks and balances. And I think that's where blockchain really shines is this decentralized ecosystem where people all over the world are now able to copy fork, create projects and and see who comes up with with something that's more efficient that's better serving yeah, this 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 sort of reminds me um of, of something i read a few years ago and 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 what, what what ryan uh just said about well what if we had for example, this algorithm, you know, and, and not money anymore, but who can decide the distribution of resources on humans in a sort of semi-objective way, you know. And uh, this sort of reminds me of um, what, what we called ro robot communism, uh, in a sense, uh, because in, if you have read Marx, this, this Capital, it, it, it's not a, like people think it's a complete bashing on capitalism. It's actually not. He acknowledges the, a lot of things which cap capitalism Uh, did for, for human society and so on. Um, he just points out that this common denominator, which is price, um, is sort of the, where, where the problem there still lies. Uh, and it, it's not like, he's not like, oh, let's go back to the system we had before, which was, uh, you know... Um, Yeah, feudalism, right? <laughs> feudalism, yes, right. feudalism. Yeah, yeah I, want, I wanted to look up the English word, yeah. <laughs> feudalism, uh, but, but it's more like, okay, we have this new one and it, it does those good things this way, But uh, because of this underlying thing where hum like I am valuing an apple right now, which I can eat differently than you, but in order to, you know, communicate, in order to, to exchange and so on, we need to have this uh, certain uh, kind of denominator. However, uh, what I wanted to get at is uh, I, I recently um, hold a, a lecture uh, at the university here about the topic of decentralization of trust. And it sort of reminded me also of that because um, the, the student asked basically a really good question. If, if we use blockchain, for example, to make decisions or whatever, or, or some sort of, even some sort of algorithm, you know, artificial intelligence and so on, don't we just shift the trust now from centralized parties, which are humans, to the algorithm itself? Because, you know, 99.9% of whatever will not understand the code which is behind this algorithm, even if it may be objective, but there's still, still some sort of trust left. So it's not completely black and white that you can say, okay, it's completely trustless or, hey, uh, you know, it's, it's completely central, decentral. There's always some sort of uh, spectrum in there. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, you're, you're trusting the audit auditors who audited the contract 
you're trusting the programmers who wrote the contract. You're trusting the uh, the network and the and the or if it's miners or whatever can you know whatever um, consensus mechanism. There's trust there. So I think it, you're right. You're not going to get away from from that. There's always going to be some low layer of trust. I guess really the question is is are we are we centralizing it and trusting fewer people that have more or and giving those people more power, like in the old paradigm. Or are we going to move the ball forward and create these decentralized technologies that still have some element of trust, but now are it's at least being diffused, and then at least the incentives for the people we are trusting are better, right? So, yeah. So I think it's like it's it's like you're not going to get away from that at some point, right? Because it's human. We're dealing with humans. What what I was thinking is maybe um, you know uh, let, let's put ourselves in the mind of a Bitcoin Maxi, for example, and. I, I, I do agree for, with a for lot of people out there listening. That's a Bitcoin maximalist. That's a person yeah. who only <laughs> uh, subscribes to Bitcoin and no other blockchain technology. Yeah, a Bitcoin maximalist is basically someone that says uh, blockchain technology is finished with Bitcoin, even though you can upgrade Bitcoin in a sense, but it's it's you know more slowly and and so on. Uh, well, the, the upgrade process more slowly and so on. But uh, they say there's no use case whatsoever for any other blockchain. Uh, and that's why they're all, you know, shit coins and they will all go to zero. Bitcoin is the, the rarest good on earth and everything will only run on Bitcoin. And uh, we, you know, uh, you don't need DeFi because we will have DeFi on on Lightning or we already have some, some, some people already say like we already have DeFi on Bitcoin, whatever that means. And but I do agree with um, some points of them and which is that it is sort of um, the secure, the most secure for a bunch of different reasons. Like, but it, it's not as I already mentioned. It's not black and white. You know, it's not like oh, Bitcoin is secure and ETH is not secure. You know, it's it's definitely not that. However, uh, if you think about it in in a very extreme way, if for some reason there is you know a way to exploit Bitcoin or whatever, even though hundreds or thousands of developers always looking at it, maybe, you know, upgrading it or miners are voting on, yes, uh, let's stay on that chain. Uh, shouldn't the same pr uh, principle be applied to block, like the number of blockchains as well? Like, why would you put all eggs in one basket if you're accepting the reality that one thing, which then would be a central, sort of centralized, right? Because it's just one, one thing, like, Bitcoin and nothing else. Why not just spread it out, and then you can have sort of this more, uh, yeah, uh, risk adjustment uh, decision making, basically, so that you, you have multiple blockchains, and then you have sort of this uh, what's actually happening now very quickly, uh, all sorts of bridges. And I know there's a lot of problems with bridges and hacks, and they're centralized. Well, mostly centralized, but the, there are ways to decentralize them as well. And then we have this huge cool network where everyone integrates with each other and it can swap seamlessly along that. So I don't care if I only have, you know, I don't know, Polkadot and, and Ethereum, but you're only into, into Bitcoin, but I can still, you know, exchange things with you just like, just like that. And I, I think for me, that is a better future than focusing in on it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing which is going to hold, you know. I think that's nonsense. Bitcoin maximalism, I, it's ironic, right? Because that philosophy goes opposed to the actual foundation of Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin itself 
was a response to a tyrannical um, legal tender, uh, a, a monetary system that, um, you know, disenfranchised one a, a one size fits all monetary system that disenfranchised a lot of people. And so if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, you're now someone who's come along at some point in time and, and acquired some of this. And you're stating that, well, now everyone, this should be the only unit of uh, account, the only uh, money that should be accepted. You're basically uh, requiring legal tender laws for Bitcoin. That's Bitcoin maximalism is, is basically uh, a state. A, it's the centralization of it's the Orwellian. It's I guess it's the most Orwellian uh, use of cryptocurrency or blockchain. And uh, it doesn't really make sense. That would be like saying the first car is the best car and everyone should drive a Ford Model T. I mean, I, there's no doubt that Bitcoin is the most secure. And, and that's why I like, Ryan, and I like to call it the proof of concept. Bitcoin is the proof of concept for what blockchain technology can do. But there's room for more cars, cars that are faster, cars that have air conditioning, cars that can drive further. Um, and, and the idea that all of humanity must wait until the Bitcoin chain can 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 meet up with the demands is is ridiculous. And it also goes against reality. I mean, Bitcoin maximalism, you have to be blind because they're already there already exist multiple yeah. chains that have value. I mean, you, you know, and, and if you're going to create a world, uh, uh, you're going to try to create some world where all all blockchains now go value go to zero. Well, uh, I don't know how that's going to turn out for Bitcoin. I mean, that- <laughs> yeah, and Lucas, there's there's also the component uh, of if everyone switches to Bitcoin, it's just, it's a it's a feedback loop that leads to no decentralization just because of how it's built. It's a proof of work system, and the more people that are using it, the more incentive there will be for miners to set up these gigafactories to run it and and make more profit, right? Well, you see in most models uh, of this that they consolidate to between five and eight people, the factories, um, because of these economies of scale, uh, because it's, I can't compete with that guy anymore. He's got a gigafactory. Right. Um, and some other people get run out of business or get absorbed and it becomes one or two people or three people, as we've seen in any tech instance or any, pick, pick a company today, uh, oil, you know, you name it. Um, that's, that's what happens again. And that again, compromises the decentralized, the, the thing that they're, everyone is so proud of. So I love you brought that point up, Devin, uh, because that's blockchain education 101. The reality is that Bitcoin is not the decentralizing uh, savior technology that many people believe it to be. It's actually standalone, one of the most Orwellian tools ever created. It is an open source public blockchain that that follows every transaction ever made. And it can, once you know uh, an address, you can follow any transaction someone's ever had from that address. So it, it is great for the potential and what it shows, but it itself is not the sole answer, which is why supporting these other innovative blockchains and these other smart contracts to solve the trilemma, to solve these problems is, is, is for me, 
such uh, is so important to educate others and to support because Bitcoin maximalism is truly, to me, the most Orwellian use of, of blockchain technology and, and the least productive, the least efficient, the least harmonious, the least ethical. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that there would even be such a thing as a Bitcoin maximalist. When you think about the fact that Bitcoin was created in the wake of the, the housing crisis in 2008, 2009, and it was for the very by a community for the very reason that they, they thought that that the single unit, the one size fits all unit was, was not enough. And that, you know, without these, without the limits on, without the legal tender limits and the, and the, um, and their seizure of like silver and, and gold mints and the various, they've done various things over the years to ensure the dollar was the only medium that without those, those laws and limits, people assume there'd be all these competitors that would spring up just like in a free banking environment. So for, and this, that's why Bitcoin was created to be like the first, a competitor, right? So why why would a group of people who are supporting monetary freedom and, and and banking competition, competition in money, why would they think that the first uh, iteration of this new thing would be the only one? When when the whole idea was to have more was to have competition, and that that was the whole point. So it'd be like they created, it'd be kind of like recreating the uh, the very thing that you were trying to get away from, right? And and then that's not even and then when you include the the financial transparency that it has the fact that it's a public blockchain it's even more um it's even less privacy uh in respecting than just paper money would be right in fact you going off what you just said there i am not surprised at all to hear all these announcements of el salvador and ukraine and all these different national governments finally saying well okay we'll 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 accept bitcoin as money i mean the reality is that if you're blockchain educated you don't want Bitcoin to be money. You, you, you absolutely are looking for something that's more efficient, that's more privacy oriented, that has lower transaction costs, that, that uh, you know, Bitcoin isn't the, the, the one all be all solution to our monetary uh, currency woes. I, I do have to say some, something here, uh, but then already... Uh point out the problems of it so uh when for example when it comes to el salvador and so on if somebody pays in bitcoin there they're not doing it on the main layer they're doing it through the lightning network but the thing is when they it's, it's kind of funny to me um I, I i haven't seen a good article from a bitcoin ma uh, maximalist or whatever to resolve that but if they are so focused on on security which is just fine like it's 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 a good argument and you can have a lot of money stored there you know but it doesn't have to be the only one because you, you cannot defy and so on on, on uh, bitcoin and everybody knows that and it's slow but therefore it's secure you know you, you have those trade-offs however uh with the lightning network thing is it's uh the system is always just as secure as its weakest link uh, kind of so if you're using lightning and there's some sort of problems there or uh, you know some, some sort of exploits or whatever it doesn't matter that the main layer is very secure if you're getting you know screwed over in your lightning nodes and then their argument for oh well those other chains you know where DeFi is happening they're not that secure well i mean if you're advocating for using lightning for all those countries to to employ those as, as legal gender and so on well it's kind of it's kind of the same thing you know yeah yeah i, I think that's right i uh that the the lightning network is a source of of uh risk and instability or potential 
uh, potential risk and instability, that's, that's a real deal. And that needs to be taken seriously. I like what you said too. And it, it also is why supporting an ecosystem of, of different blockchains and um, is, is really the, the most, is the best security. The best security is options, not having just one to choose from, you know, going into the store and having different companies make bread or different companies make televisions or different companies. The best checks and balances is that, is that healthy competition. That, well, that's you, the best feedback loop in, in markets, right? You call it voice and exit commonly, correct? Yes. Yeah. So the ability to, to have the voice to say what you want and, and be able to exit the system if that's your decision. Which in cryptocurrency, I believe seeing different communities emerge and grow is, is great. And people should, many people are diversified. It's not like, well, I'm in the Litecoin camp. I have only Litecoin. Well, I'm in the Bitcoin camp. I, have, I mean, there are many people who are supporting multiple smart contract platforms and multiple proof of work digital assets as, as, as different cryptos, as we call them, uh, they function or specialize at providing services in, in different ways, whether it be um, cost, whether it be privacy, whether it be, you know, you name it. That actually ties into game theory. Uh, so I, I also I also would say that sort of the the maxi camps, uh, like the distribution of the maxi camps, uh, a lot of people are more diversified now than in let's say 2017. I think you guys are uh, also got got into uh, crypto more like in a 2017, and uh, maybe you can, you know, uh, tell me uh, that you made the same observation or not. But yes, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, right, and. Um, What I was trying to get at is uh, if if we talk about game theory where we have a game with incomplete information, which which this one is, you know, we have incomplete information. You know, who who knows what's gonna if I would knew if I would know that Ethereum is gonna you know shoot up to four thousand tomorrow with a hundred percent certainty, then I would go all in on it, uh, you know, and, and and leverage it, whatever, you know. Obviously, like this would be the best play, right? But I don't know that. If that's going to happen. However, I do know, okay, crypto makes sense, you know, technology, people are going to use it. It's more efficient than, than the traditional finance thing. It's probably going to go up over time. So I'm going to, going to buy something and hold it. For example, right? I don't have cryptocurrency, by the way, no financial advice, but <laughs> um, what I'm trying to get at is that diversification is sort of actually kind of the best solution also from a completely theoretical thing because When you're a maxi, what you're actually saying is that you have a hundred percent confident. Like if you're a maxi and you put all, like you're just all in, in, in one thing, what you're actually saying is that you have an objective sort of, um, you're saying, okay, there's a hundred percent certainty that this will succeed. There's no chance whatsoever. It won't succeed. You know, this is going to happen. Like, and oh, I love that. You know what, Renee? I love that you brought it up like that. We were, I was just talking about that before the podcast and bringing up this. That's like this, this absolutism, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's very unscientific, right? Because in, in the mode of science, um, the idea is, is to be able to test when new information comes along. It's, it's to be able to, to, to not know the answer. Right to, to not know what is the best because there could be something else that comes along that that could be better and and to be a maximalist is very I, I 
find it to be a very unscientific perspective, something that's lacking um, an, an openness of, of well, it's, it's arrogance, right? Intellectual arrogance. Yeah, or misinformation, like the different zeitgeists that we all have and the different realities we live in. But yeah, to, to an extent, it's it's a lot of, um, it's an ego play as well, or an ego trip uh, of thinking you have all the information and you think you, uh, yeah, you think you know how it's going to work. You think Ethereum is going to $4,000 and what you think is is factual, um, which, you know, that's why they tell you don't bring emotions into into trading or finance. Yeah, and, and, and now um, we can sort of uh, take that over to, I think, social. we can talk a bit about communities on social media when, when it comes to crypto, um, because if, and, and, and sort of not necessarily only crypto, but if you're like the sort of bubble, the sort of, you know, social media bubbles where you're in, where you're always in, in sort of a, um, it sort of leads to um, sort of an echo chamber thing if you're not careful, you know, if you only follow, if, let's say you're an E fan and you only follow uh, Ethereum fans, and then then it will always reinforce back, uh, like positively, yeah, yeah, Eve, Eve is going to, yeah, Eve is better than every everything else, you know. And the same with, with Bitcoin maximalism and so on. And it's really easy to to fall into the trap, like for everyone, you know, uh, to 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 have sort of only. Um, yeah, self self fulfilling narratives uh, throwing back at you basically, and then just creating your own your own bubble. And uh, I think that's th that that could be something we could talk about. You know, I think like I think I memes, love that point. I think this kind of uh, touches on memes and the way. I, I don't know if you're if you guys are followers of this, but there was a uh, a concerted effort during the 2016 election to to change reality through the spread of memes, right? Uh, and, and that's, there's like a, there's a whole study of how memes can, can be a feedback s sort of, uh, sorts and, and shift people's opinions. And, and when they go viral, they have real world, real world effects on what the population believes about things. <clears throat> so I think just, just the vehicle of a meme, just the concept, it, it's, it's, it's like the, it's, it's applying these, these ideas to the social sphere. Right. And, and it's a, there's a pretty good, it's a pretty good analog. Um, yeah, with the memes, uh, um, I, I think wasn't it um, this biologist who mm -hmm. sort of in, in introduced uh, yeah, what was his name? The study of memetics. Yeah, yeah what, you're what right. I don't, I don't remember his name though. Yeah, it was it's a super famous uh, evolutionary biologist. I, for some reason, I can't remember his name now. Richard Dawkins. I think it was Richard Dawkins actually. Yeah, you're right, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, yeah. The um, uh, the self, the selfish gene, or something like that. Was yeah, the paper. Right. yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. He. Oh, um, that's no. I remember, and I, I got inspired. What Renee said is uh, that's what's so beautiful about getting outside of your bubble, getting outside mm -hmm. of your culture, and and they've actually found that children, babies, humanity, their their brains. The more the more you read, the more they travel, the more um, stimuli, uh, the different stimuli uh, increases the intellectual capacity and. It's like it's like getting outside of your bubble. Don't just be around Ethereum lovers if you have Ethereum. Don't just be around Bitcoin maximalists if you have Bitcoin. Learn about the others. That's what I love about diversification is getting outside of your comfort zone, learning about proof of stake, learning about proof of work, learning about hybrid models, learn about something 
that you're not a part of. Learn about what a different culture eats or their music. We all better ourselves from getting outside of our limited understanding and opening ourselves, opening ourselves to the knowledge in different groups. Very well said. Uh, Ryan, can you remind the audience of, of what you said uh, right before the podcast about, you know, making the best point for the for the opposition uh, argument? I, I think the fits in perfectly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we, we already touched on Turing and uh, his, mm -hmm. the, the Turing, what was it, Turing pattern that you discussed in yeah. biology? And so my my familiarity with Turing was uh, with this concept called the ideological Turing test. And I'm, I'm, now that refers to the this idea that, and this is a test you would give yourself or uh, or your opponent, I suppose. But the idea is you pass the test if you can faithfully reproduce the uh, an argument of your opponent, like your opponent's argument. So say you're, a, if you're, let's just make it simple. You're a Republican and, and there's a Democrat, you're a democratic person you're discussing something with. If, if you can faithfully re, uh, re, reword and defend their point of view in a way that highlights and kind of captures all the nuances of what they believe. And you can do this without, you know, without straw manning it and without leaving a lot of essential details out. Then that, then that argument, your argument meets the Turing test. And it basically says you understand your opponents. And the idea is if you can't do this, if you can't faithfully recreate your opponent's argument, it under it kind of suggests that you don't understand your own argument all that well. Right. So yeah, I, I like that. It's amazing. That yeah, that's 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 really cool. I yeah, I have to keep that in mind. Just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think about this, Devin? Well, I think it's fascinating. And and I'm just thinking of all the uh, arguments I've been in and Mm -hmm. No, I yeah, clearly yeah. did not understand, you know, my anthropology friends talking about this. And, and I'm like, well, I could still argue with that. What? No, I don't know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it happens a lot. And yeah, it'd be interesting to uh, actually consider and, and uh, exercise while Definitely, yeah. argument. Practice yeah. That. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It circles back around to Plato and or Socrates, rather, the idea that The more you learn, the uh, the less you the less you're confident in what you know, right? The yeah. more humble you are. Yeah, yeah. With the story where it's, go out and find the most intelligent man in, in the kingdom or something like that. The king says to him, and he says it's mm -hmm. me, correct? Because he doesn't expect himself to be smarter. So, do you know the story? I vaguely recall, but it's been a long time since yeah. I heard that. We'll, we'll we'll let it be. But yeah, there's something there. That's your homework if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> One thing uh, which I found really fascinating is that uh, just because of my work and because uh, I'm, I'm so heavily into the rabbit hole of landing protocols, and how liquidations work and so on, and how uh, different decentral, uh, well, landing protocols do it and how centralized exchanges do it, who over leverage and what it all means and the math behind it and so on, and the fees and how, you know, prices are, Uh, picked up by oracles and how you can, you know, exploit that and, and this, this whole area of things. And um, there is uh, this exchange called uh, FTX. I, I think you guys uh, heard, heard of it, uh, which is run by Sam Bankman Fried or something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm really bad with names. And he is, you know, self-made billionaire uh, business business guy, uh, pretty young, still very successful. And he was on a podcast and he mentioned something uh, which which was really interesting to me uh, in that co whole context. And that is um, 
during March 2020, basically uh, during the Corona uh, crisis, where also Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, uh, the whole crypto market, uh, took a deep di uh, dive downwards. This was caused by um, sort of an avalanche of liquidations, and ju just for the you know people listening to to explain what that means. So, uh, let's say you think that. You're very bullish on Bitcoin. You say, okay, I think the price is going up. You know, there are several options what you can do. You can say, okay, I'm going to buy Bitcoin and hold it, you know, and just see the price going up. That would be one X leverage. You know, you just traded your, your probably fiat currency, let's say US dollars or euros or whatever uh, into Bitcoin. Okay. And then the price goes up. And if you would sell, you would get, and the price has gone up, you would get more fiat currency back. And that would be a one-to-one -one ratio because uh, let's say you buy it at 50, one Bitcoin at $50,000 for $50,000 and it would go up to $100,000. And now you would sell it, you would have made $50,000 profit. Uh, so you would 2X your money when the price 2Xs. So the ratio is one-to-one. -one. So you would have 1X leverage with sort of spot buying basically. Okay, now there's other options which you can do. Uh, which is called, uh, yeah, leverage trading. So what you could do is you could say, okay, I am very convinced that Bitcoin is going up uh, such that I'm going to take leverage, meaning uh, 2x. So I'm going to borrow money, which I don't have at the moment. And I, I deploy my uh, current money as collateral for that to buy even more Bitcoin, you know? And you could exercise that into higher and higher uh, multiplicatives, meaning let's say you would have 10X leverage and the price goes up 10%, then you would have you know, uh, 10 times 10% uh, the gains and so on. So that's how the math works, okay. However, if the price goes down, um, what will happen is since you borrowed money and you put something up as collateral, at some point, if the price has fallen enough, your collateral needs needs to be cashed in to pay off your debt. Because there's no such thing as a credit score here. You know, you, you cannot cheat. You cannot say, okay, um, you know, my next paycheck, I'm going to pay for this. That's, that's not how it works in the uh, crypto, in the crypto space. Okay. Now what happens uh, and what happens a lot when those corrections happen is uh, a sort of a cascade. And that means is, what that means is um, you have uh, several traders who have uh, leverage trades in there with, with Bitcoin, like going long, multiple different axes, like let's say 2x, some, somebody has 5x and so on. And they all have their sort of um, price. If it falls to that point, they are forced to sell their Bitcoin. Now you can think of it like this. Let's say some sort of bad news drops. And we have some sort of whale who uh, all of a sudden sells a lot of Bitcoin and the price drops. Now, the first one who joined the latest with the highest leverage will get liquidated, meaning he's forced to sell his Bitcoin position. But that means the price is going down even further. Now, this, the second one who just is just right below him the same thing happens to them. And now the price gets down, 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 down. It's like an, an avalanche downwards, basically. 
and well yeah avalanche is going downwards and um and the avalanche was so severe in march 2020 that the exchanges actually had to sort of manually stop it because otherwise the price would have momentarily gone really to zero and then that meme if you know that meme uh, from youtube uh, with bitcoin going to zero would have actually happened <laughs> and that that would be a huge problem uh, for the all the mining uh, companies and so on so yeah that's just the story i wanted to share i mean obviously it can't go infinite because this is just with the positions that are leveraged and there are there are holders hodlers and there's a supply and, and there are those people who aren't engaged in leverage trading that will keep a floor, so to speak. But, um, but I think what you just pointed out, Renee, is something that I believe earmarks the, the current bull run. I, I really do believe that what we're seeing a pattern of is a pattern of forced liquidations, right? Because if you think about it, Aave, Banky, all these protocols, all these DeFi protocols, or even FTX or, or, or BitSwap, all of these protocols are allowing people to take their digital assets, their valuable Ethereum or Bitcoin, and, and gamble and leverage that the, that the market is just going to continue going up, 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 up. Well, there are institutions that have uh, enough supply to, to push price down. And, and when they do, we're seeing these liquidations where we're, we're witnessing people getting wiped out of their positions and then the bleeding kind of stops and then it kind of picks up again. But, you know, I was thinking about this and I don't know the answer. I'm kind of throwing this out there to you guys. Um, retail versus institutional. Who do you think are the people getting wiped out in leveraged trades? I mean, I know what I, I think my opinion and I've not done a lot of research, so it's 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 not that uh, you know I wouldn't put a lot on it. But I'm really believing that this is a confiscation of wealth um, from retail to institutional, because I, I do think that the people that are on Uniswap providing LP, the people that are on Banky and Ave, most of these people are are re are what's considered dumb money or retail investors, um, and, and and those the people engaged in BitSwap. It's not yet uh, been overtaken by, you know, the traditional financial empire. And, and so I think that these forced liquidations are these price dumps that, that are really um, taking crypto from retail and, and, buy, and then you see microstrategy or these big, these big uh, buy ups. And it, I think this is institutional money taking, uh, doing what it can to, to get as much as it can. As we all know, the blockchain revolution has been marked by, by retail investors or dumb money having an initial opportunity to get involved in blockchain before institutional. And, and so I think this is kind of like a, we're seeing a play out, a war um, on this leverage trading. That's, uh, I don't think it's too far-fetched. The blockchain allows you to see exactly how many people are leveraged at what, le like you can, you can see stats. And so if, yeah, if you have a remarkable amount of money and you have to remember that centralized exchanges don't have all the liquidity, like you're not dealing with 100% of the liquidity of Bitcoin, you're dealing with probably 16% or, or less. And if you can manipulate that, which MicroStrategy certainly can, I'm not blaming or, or pointing fingers at anyone specifically, 
maybe even maybe the minor mining pools, if anyone. But these people have the amount of Bitcoin, uh, and I guess the the no no well incentive, sure, to make more money. Um, but then they, yeah, they have the information available to them. That is, hey, these people are over leveraged. If we were to sell 200 Bitcoin and it would start this cascade and then we could buy, you know, 300 Bitcoin back with the amount we've made, like, yeah, of course. Um, so I don't think that's too far-fetched. And, and I think um, it's just, it's just a mean, or a, a matter of finding out who and do you regulate that? Do you not? Do you say, hey guys, stop leveraging uh, do not like, you know, what do you do? Um, so it is tough. Um, but that's, that is, you know, like you said, Bitcoin is not, it is a proof of concept. It is not the complete model. It's, uh, and this well, problem is not the- this problem about, uh, that you bring up Renee seems, I think it with, with crypto, I think it, you also see it in, in gold and silver markets, right? You'll see that, that there'll be, um, and this isn't something I've read about recently, but I remember a few years ago, and there was even a, a lawsuit about this, but there was manipulation in the um, in the futures markets. What was going on was there were large amounts of GLD, like digital gold contracts, that would be dumped in the wee hours of the of the morning on the on these exchanges and these sell contracts, and it would trigger all these stop loss levels that that these bots and these algorithms would be programmed to, and then they would kind of hunt for the level and trigger it. And then it would create this bunch of sell orders. And then, uh, that, and then there'd be a bunch and those sell orders would find, would push prices lower, which would trigger a whole other set of, of, of stop losses for other people. And then this would create that avalanche, that snowball effect, right. Where it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you get, you get trapped in a feedback loop. And then at the end of it, some, some JP, I think it was JP Morgan would come in and purchase, you know, large amounts of, of gold, uh, paper gold again, GLD at these really cheap prices in the in right. thin markets, and it was always done during overnight hours when the liquidity was thin, and, mm-hmm. and they could really move prices. So yeah, this this gaming <laughs> of of markets is is an old story, and it's not something that's that's going to get solved. I don't believe with at the regulatory level. I think really it's about trans, you know, getting the idea out there that this happens, and then just kind of educating people, and then um, and then just also really yeah education and then competition sure better platforms better exchanges will um will help hopefully mitigate it i think um what the blockchain sort of community needs is some sort of mathematical statistics site where because uh, if you think about it you could map it out where you, you because of the transparency you could have in theory you know with with the on when it comes to on-chain leverage Obviously, but um, also when it comes to centralized exchanges, if they would publish all those data with leverage, who is taking what leverage, and all those exchanges would do that, then you could just calculate that. Okay, if somebody like we know that you know this this institution or these institutional investors have so much Bitcoin already, and let's say they want to buy something more, but they calculate that if they dump it at the moment, people are so over leveraged, and then they just pay some news outlets to say, oh yeah, uh, well, uh, China is spending Bitcoin again, and uh, uh, it's bad for the environment, uh, and so on, you know, uh, while liquidating, like while those avalanche uh, starts, just to buy back in, because they know that in two or three years, it's going to be a really good play. Uh, Maybe we need some sort of you know statistical side where it says warning, like okay, 
those institutions could have enough to do this at the moment and there's a sort of percentage uh whatever maybe maybe they can help yeah uh, you know that'd be a good idea for a website something that kind of collected as much data about leverage positions and then maybe something about the price where we're at in the price uh structure whether or not we're getting to a, a point where we're overextended or whether it's under under overbought you know and then combine all this all these metrics and then looking at on-chain data yeah i think that's that's actually a a, a good idea let's make it happen to, i would love that <laughs> i would love so that. i think so far through all of our episodes ryan we're starting a healthcare company a decentralized crypto country <laughs> Uh, now a website. This doesn't seem too hard. We could do it. <laughs> we have, yeah. I guess we have our work cut out for us now, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, never say um, no. You know? No, that's true. You, yeah, you never know. With especially with blockchain and people build. I mean, Dogecoin was created by one person. Bitcoin, you know, supposedly created by one person. Like these, mm. these are. Yeah. Right. Who knows? But right. Um, who guys? By the way, who are who are your guesses for the creator of Bitcoin? I think Renee and I share the same person. You know, I don't have any uh, real, real big thoughts on that. I, uh, my, but my hunch is it's not just one person. There's a team involved. Okay. All right. That's, but I don't have any insight. So take that for what it's worth. I am, I would say 80 to, uh, yeah, let's say 80% uh, chance that I, let's how I, I feel with all the evidence I've, I've shown and the research I've done is 80% chance it's Adam Beck, uh, the, the CEO of Blockstream actually, which funds yeah we, we, yeah let's let's discuss this another time it's, it's a whole it's a whole <laughs> that is, deep that's a whole another episode you're right yeah yeah um, it is I, I agree with you though yeah. but um but and the other 20 percent actually also involves him um but also involves um what was his name nick sabo craig, craig oh nick sabo yeah, yeah and uh craig, craig other, right <laughs> no, <laughs> not on. Craig Wright. Uh, Dorian Come on, it's a big. I, now I, I'm sorry to all the Bitcoin SV guys, but no, Craig Wright is just a scammer. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah. Sorry, I, I've never seen any evidence whatsoever that he can even code. So, <laughs> um, but uh, no. Um, what uh, what is his name? Ah, yeah, Hal Finney. Yeah. So oh, I think uh, yeah. they, mm-hmm. you know. 20% chance that they were in contact with each other all the time and just developing it uh, all together. So, well, they definitely were um, in contact with each other from what I understand. Yeah, sure. They were in contact, but in, in, in a sense where, you know, who created it, whatever, it's, that's a whole other topic, I guess. Yeah. The, uh, uh-huh. This would be the crypto punk community, right? Of the nineties. <laughs> Wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the sites, the cyberpunk, yeah, cyberpunk, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good talk, documentary about it. Yeah, well, guys, thank you so much, Renee. Again, uh, particle physicist turned professional poker player turned game theory mathematician for blockchain DeFi company. Crazy resume there. We're very grateful to have you on, and uh, thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a blast. Uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. <laughs> yeah, sweet. All right, guys, uh, we will see you next week. Lucas, Ryan, have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye.